The Bob Murphy Show, episode 63. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is Nicholas Kachanowski, who is a assistant professor of economics at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He's got research interest in monetary economics and macro, and much of his recent work has focused on incorporating the aspects of financial duration into traditional business cycle models. And we talk a lot about that in the actual interview. Also, just to make a little connection here, so Nicholas got his master's and PhD in economics at Suffolk University under Ben Powell, whom many of you may remember for my interview with him here on the Bob Murphy show. And I also worked with Ben when I was at the free market Institute at Texas tech. And what, what happened is I saw Nicholas, I've known Nicholas for several years now. He's been working on the area of capital theory and financial markets. And how does that intersect, which is what I was doing when I was deep into the academic literature at Texas tech in particular, I might still be doing some articles down the road. And I had the recent, podcast episode here where I talked about my QJAE article on fractional reserve banking. And then online, uh, Nicholas chimed in when George Selgin on Twitter was talking about it. And I saw an interesting article Nicholas had about the fractional reserve banking stuff. He and I have a difference of opinion. And I thought that would be a good thing to talk about. So we're going to talk about capital theory, his background in economics, And then we'll get into the fun, controversial stuff on fractional reserve banking. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nicholas Kachanowski. Nicholas, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hi, Bob. Thank you. I uh, wanted to have you on, and I've said this a little bit already in the formal introduction that the listeners just heard, because the work you've been doing on what's called capital theory is really in line with, and you've been doing a lot of it with Peter Lewin. That's exactly the kind of stuff I was trying to do um, when, back when I was working at Texas Tech. And so before we get into the, your actual publications, can you maybe just give us a little bit of a background? Like, I'm curious, do you consider yourself an Austrian economist or do you, are you just uh, you know familiar with the school and how did you get into this area, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I, if I have to think about myself in those terms, yes, I probably think I'm an Austrian economist. I will emphasize the word economist. That's what my that's what drives my interest the most, and I try to read as uh, as broadly as I can. And I think that many Austrians have very interesting things to say, and I take them seriously. Uh, it's it's a kind of a personal accident story how I got into into this school of thought. Uh, it was through my dad, who was also an economist. He studied with Hans Selhorst in the U.S., who was himself a student of Mises. So when I started to have some interest in economic topics, of course, I turned into my dad, and he started to give me his own papers, books like Hayek, Mises, and so on. 
So my entry into economics was through reading the Austrians, which mm. for me and, was. And just a, to be clear, just for the listeners who who aren't in academics, yeah, I mean, your dad was a was a scholar. It's not just like yes. he was some guy who had a passing interest in Henry Hazlitt or something. I mean, he mm. he was an yeah, academic too. Yeah. Yes, he did his PhD in the U.S. with Sam Sanchols. He came back to Argentina and he had a a very long uh, career as an academic. He was a professor. He became the dean of the business school of Universidad Francisco Marroquín in Guatemala. I mean, his career was academic and he wrote a number of papers, but they are in Spanish. So outside the Spanish world, they're not very well known, but I grew up reading those papers. That was like my main introduction into uh, into this world. Um so I can I, can I ask you, yes. Nicholas, did you at first because there's some uh, sons don't want to do the exact same thing their dad did because they're you know, they don't want his shadow overcasting them. Did did you know from a young age that you wanted to be an economist or is that something you kind of rebelled against and then reluctantly came back to it? No, uh, originally I wanted to study physics. Then I think I had a period of time when I wanted to study astrophysics focusing the space, the universe, and all those problems. And somewhere in mid-high school, we had to prepare an essay on some topic that will be open for debate. And I took that as the opportunity to get into a little of economics. So I wanted to talk about this issue, if whether or not the development of new technology and machines creates unemployment. So I asked my dad for some advice and guidance, and I remember I found very powerful the line of argumentation like Mm -hmm. okay you can see a scientific explanation in something as complex as loose as a social social science if you want and that house was what hooked me at the beginning Uh, so by the end of of high school i i decided i wanted to become an economist and follow that career he never pushed me one way or the other but he was uh, happy with the decision uh, I remember in one of his uh, trips around the world, he, he he used to travel a lot. He deviated from his <laughs> from his the airport and went all the way to the Foundation of Economic Education fee. He was still outside New York to bought my copy of Human Action, which he brought me and gave me as a gift when I finished high school. And that's uh, the copy I still have. Uh, so he was happy with the decision, but he never pushed me one way or the other, and I just. Uh, fall into the interest of the subject. That's funny you mentioned that because I actually, when I was in like eighth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I thought I was going to become a physicist when I grew up. I loved Richard Feynman, and uh, and then I, yeah, I was in high school that somehow I I switched and all of a sudden said, oh no, it's got to be Austrian economics. So I, I think we had a similar interest when we were younger. Yeah. It seems to be yes, I remember and I still have somewhere. Uh, I remember reading the history of physics by George Gamo and, you know, and these guys. And of course, I found it super attractive. It's like, I want to do this. And then when I started to see the deep questions that you get to deal with when you study economics, that was like something else. Mm-hmm. So where did you end up going uh, to school then? I did my undergrad in, in Argentina, uh, the same university where my, my dad went. And I still remember... And my professors back there, you know, going through attendance and remembering having my dad and my uncle and maybe my mom as their students some years ago. Uh, when I finished that, I went for a master's in economics and political sciences because I was interested in the institutional role of of the market. 
And, and I wanted to have a little insight from political sciences. Like, okay, I have my degree in economics, but I, I, now I want some, let's say the uh, higher marginal value is in learning some political science, not, you know, one more model in economics or, or whatever that would be. Uh, and I knew by then I wanted to go all the way to my to my doctorate. And I actually started in Argentina in the same university where, um, where I did my undergrad. And in the way, uh, a friend of mine, also an economist, he put me in contact with uh, Ben Powell, who was at that time at Suffolk University recruiting students for their program. And I applied to Suffolk. I went all the way to Boston and started over again. Uh, got my degree in 2013, and that's when I moved to Denver, where I'm now. Uh, more or less at the same time, he moved to Texas Tech. Yeah, so that's great. And I think at this point, yeah, why don't we just jump right in? Because I know there's a lot of content I want to cover with you. So uh, why don't we just jump right into it? So folks, so this is, uh, you'll go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 63 to see links to all these articles. So Nicholas, um, I think, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, the, the most sensible way to do this is I'll just go through and highlight some of these articles. I'm looking at your CV because I think just having you talk about the big picture of what you were doing in these papers will help the listeners get a sense of it. Okay. Um, and so, for example, we've got, let's see, there's one here. This is from 2018, so it's relatively recent. You co-authored this with Peter Lewin, and it's called The Role of Capital Structure in Austrian Business Cycle Theory. So can you first just tell the folks who Peter Lewin is? Because I, I know... <laughs> A lot of the stuff that, that you're doing that you know is right up my alley in terms of my interests. A lot of it's you're, you're co-authoring with Peter Lewin, and he, I go back way with him in the sense that um, when I was in grad school, Nicholas, I wrote an article for the um, the what is it called, the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics, and you know it, it won an award, whatever the year was, you know, it, it won the award for the best student paper or something, and it was a critique of the pure time preference theory of interest. And Peter Lewin was like the reviewer. So, so he was the guy that got up, you know, at the, at the meetings. And it was funny because he said, at first I was getting ready to do a number on this kid. And then I was, the more I read, I was like, oh, he, he knows what he's talking about. You know, that kind of thing. So it was, it was uh, so anyway, there's a, a soft spot in my heart for Peter Lewin. But can you just briefly explain who he is and how did you start co-author? Because you've got a bunch of co-authored articles with him. So I think people might, just younger academics might be curious about that. Like, how do you team up with an, an older economist to, to be doing joint work together? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I've, I've known him uh, for maybe four years now when we started working together. I knew who he was uh, before that. Uh, but Lewin is, is a very interesting person. He uh, he was a Ludwig Lachmann student uh, in South Africa, if I remember this correctly. Uh, so he's uh, he's kind of a Lachmanite, I think. And he moved to Chicago to do, to do his PhD in Chicago University. And mm-hmm. I, I think it was... Gary Becker, his doctoral dissertation, actually. And I don't know all of his story, but I know he was in the private sector for some years, and he always had his academic interest. And now he's uh, he's teaching at um, University of Texas at Dallas in the business school. Uh, his work has been mainly in capital theory. He has a, a very good book I've read before I started working with him, which is called Capital in, in Disequilibrium. Uh, I can't remember if, who was the first publisher, but now I know it's available for free uh, at the Mises Institute, uh, which republished the book. So mm. anyone who's listening to us can go to the website and download the book. 
if you have an interest in this area, I recommend reading that book. Yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a great, it's a great book. Yeah, I, I use that. In, it's in an abstract school. topic. It's hard, but he makes it very, very simple. It's one of the most smartest person I know. Being able to get something so uh, complicated, complex, confusing, and explain it so easily. Um, it was in the fall of 2013. I was at the conference of the Southern Economic Association, where uh, the Society for the Development of Ocean Economics, the one that you mentioned before, also has their annual meeting. And I was attending a panel, and there was, uh, I remember Roger Coppola and Peter Lee, when I couldn't remember who the third person was. And during the presentation, at some point, Coppola says something like, well, the roundaboutness or the average period of production, which I'm sure we'll get back to this. Uh, he said, well, that's like the duration making reference to the cash flow of a firm. Uh, and that like attracted me on the spot because I was thinking about this idea actually from reading some of my dad's work, uh, but I was just out of grad school. My dissertation was on another topic and I didn't have the time to explore this further. And I could see some uh, agreement between what couple was saying, uh, my understanding of what he was saying, and I think Lewin also gave some uh, approval note, I can't remember. So as soon as the conference finished, I emailed both Coppola and Lewin, and I presented them my, my idea. This is what I'm thinking. In some sense, I think it's a little trivial. On the other way, I don't see anyone talking about this. It's worth writing this. And Coppola replied, yes, go for it. Uh, five minutes later, I got an email from Peter Lewin saying, yes, go for it. And five minutes later, I get another email from Peter Lewin saying, can we write this together? <laughs> okay, and so that's how it happened. <laughs> I was just out of grad school and I had Peter Lewin offering writing, co-authoring a paper on capital theory. Of course, I said yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the first thing I know, we are writing on the topic for like four years now. And so that, that's how it started. So as you were mentioning, my advice for grad students, uh, young economists, etc., you know, don't be afraid, just reach out. You never know what you're going to get back. Worst case scenario, you hear nothing. <laughs> yeah. And no big deal. It, but maybe you find someone who is, you know, excited about working with with young economists on a topic that they like and they are willing to to work together. And I know many people that have a similar approach and I try to do the same when I can. I think too, it's sort of like um like if you're going to go to the gym, sometimes if you have a partner like that, it just kind of keeps you honest and you, you're not going to skip because, you know, the other guy's expecting you to show up. So sometimes when you, when I'm co-authoring articles with people like it, it keeps us, it can, it can backfire on you too, though, because then if the other guy isn't doing his part, then you don't feel so guilty not doing your part either. So sometimes it can get bogged down because there's diffuse responsibility, but other times it, it kind of keeps you from uh, letting it slide too long. Yes, if, if you happen to find someone who is easy to work with, it can be very productive and very enjoyable for both. And I think both of us became more productive of this, and both of us learned a lot of things that we haven't thought we'll go through when we thought about writing the first paper mm -hmm. that we did together. Yeah. So what you're doing here, this, this idea of capital structure or capital theory, and you just have a lot of different articles showing why it's important. And that's why I wanted to have you start out with this one for the listeners about, again, the title is The Role of Capital Structure in Austrian Business Cycle Theory. And so, yeah, can you explain we did this paper, but just also sort of giving a commercial as to, man, capital theory is kind of hard. And that's one of the areas where the Austrians are far more in-depth 
than the Keynesians or even the Chicago school folks, but it matters, right? It's not just that, oh, it's this arcane topic that Austrians are interested in just because it's obscure and it sets us apart. There's a, there's a payoff for it. That's what I see you doing in your work is you're showing this is why it's a good thing that there was at least one school of thought out there that kept alive this tradition of really getting into capital theory, even though a lot of sharp mathematical economists have kind of zoomed past it. They, you know, they kind of make assumptions that make these thorny problems go away, but these problems shouldn't just be assumed away. Yes. Let me see if I can explain this and you, you keep in track, but what's the main, the main thing that started this for us? So think of a farm that is producing, I don't know, a consumer good, any good, it doesn't matter, a mobile phone, a computer, whatever. That production process obviously <laughs> takes time. <clears throat> at some point it starts, at some point it ends. I don't think anyone will dispute that producing takes time. So it's a natural thing that at some point in time, like when Barber, Menger, and others were thinking, well, then what's the period of production? And it happens to be that answering that question can be very, very tricky and very, very complicated. And one of the issues when Ben Barber was dealing with this and he's trying to give an example is that the way he presents this is kind of backward looking. And he's saying, or, or the message that one gets is, OK, we have this good. The question is not how long it's going to take to produce it will be like a forward looking question. It's how long it took to produce it. Uh, and that, among other things, creates a problem like, okay, so how you define when you start? It can be the beginning of time, so production becomes meaningly production time, is infinity or whatever, or you have to arbitrarily choose a starting date, which means it's not an objective measure. And because of this issue and some other issues, the idea of period of production starts to lose attraction, it became a problem. At some point in the pure theory of capital, high excess, it's, uh, this is going nowhere. And it, it remained like that. And that's one of the reasons capital theory became such an abstract, a lost topic in modern Austrian economics. What Pete Lewin and I are trying to say is like that line that Koppel said. It's like, well, if you are running a business and you're forward looking and you have a cash flow where you have your input, what you have to pay, and then you have your output when you get your revenue, if there is a cash flow, then there is something called duration, which listeners with some financial background will probably find it very familiar. It's a very, very familiar, widely used financial concept. Uh, for the ones who have a modern economic background, this may make sense. Uh, an economist that was working on this back in the time, and his work kind of got lost in the history of thought, uh, was Hicks. And Hicks is framing this idea and he says, okay, what's the question? What's happening with the price of a capital good, which, which is going to produce goods in the future when the interest rate moves, right? The idea behind the Austrian business cycle theory, roundaboutness, and so on. And he takes the elasticity of this relationship and he gets to what we call today duration. So what Lewin and I are saying is, hey, we understand that the average period of production, roundaboutness, can be very confusing, problematic. But if you replace this with a well-known, widely used, understood concept of financial duration, these problems go away. And you still keep the idea that you are trying to deal with in place. And that cleans, uh, cleans away a lot of confusion and also allows to 
do other work like uh, some of the work we've been doing with this, reframing the business cycle theory in financial terms. Uh, and the reason to do that is that if the average period of production roundaboutness is so confusing, elusive, and problematic, and that is the distinctive uh, ingredient of the Austrian business cycle theory, all the theory becomes problematic. Uh, but if we clarify that and we give it a more solid foundation, the whole theory becomes more uh, solid and hopefully <laughs> uh, more uh, uh, easy to grasp and accept by, by other economists. So, Nicholas, if if you don't mind here, let, let's stop for a second and let me paraphrase what you just said. So I'll, I'll yes. start to summarize and then you can either correct me or just, you know, say, yeah, that's right. But, you know, you missed this part here because I'm sure I, I bet the listeners vaguely get what you're talking about, but they might not be confident. So let me go okay. ahead. And, sure. and, and the, the fortunately, I did earlier, um, Nicholas, about, I don't know, back in January, February, I had three separate podcast episodes devoted to capital and interest in the Austrian tradition. And I focused on Bambavik. And, and so for you longtime listeners that slog through that, this, you know, now the payoff will be here because you'll, you'll really understand what Nicholas and I are talking about. So, so there's, there's Karl Menger, the founder of the Austrian school. And then the next generation is, includes this guy, Eugen von Bambavik. And he's, you know, he's hand in hand with modern capital theory that that was his baby. And, the big picture of how Bambavrik viewed uh, like the progression of an economy is he said, there's, you know, there's natural inputs like human labor and natural resources. And then there's produced means of production that we call capital goods. And so the way to think about, you know, how do we use capital? It's like saying, it's like you're tying up the, the natural, the original factors of production, land and labor in longer and longer processes. Right. So just picture, uh, Robinson Crusoe, he gets dumped off on an island and he's looking around. And so he can directly just try to climb trees and pick coconuts with his bare hands. Or he can first go around, collect a bunch of sticks, get some vines, you know, tie them together to a long pole and then use that to knock down coconuts. And so, you know, you're saying, oh, he built a tool or he built a capital good. But the way Bambavrik would look at that is say he en- he embarked on a longer production process that he tied up his labor hours in the you know, the sticks are natural resources and then the vines are natural resources. He invested them in a longer term project. And that's why the physical yield was higher at the end of that pipeline. And so for Bambavert, then an important concept was what was called the air average period of production. So that was when you look at the economy as a whole and you ask how long are people's, you know, labor hours and the raw natural minerals and resources tied up in a production process. And the longer it is, the, the longer the time horizon you have to work with, Bambavrik said, just as an empirical fact, you can find more physically productive processes. So if you give somebody 20 years, they can use roundabout methods and first make tools, then use those tools to make other tools and then make those da 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 So that, you know, if you, when the consumer good gets sh- shooting out the end it, after 20 years, there's a lot more units of consumer good per unit of how many inputs did you pump in? And just the, you know, there's the time element. And that, you can see how folks that, you know, if you're willing to save and defer gratification, that's why you get a higher standard of living measured in real terms, right? Because you're allowed, it allows society to move to more, to longer, more roundabout production processes. So anyway, that the measure Bambavar came up with was what was called the average period of production. And then as Nicholas is saying, though, the problem is 
in Bumbavrik's little numerical examples, it was a well-defined concept and it totally made sense that, ah, yes, if Robinson Crusoe saves a bunch of his income, you know, he builds up coconuts and then devotes his labor time to building nets and things to go fishing with and, and boats and whatever, then, you know, his average period of production clearly goes up and that explains why his labor is more physically productive he, he catches more fish per hour when he's using the net, even take into account that he's got to maintain the net and that sort of thing. So that's fine. But in general, it was a dubious concept. And an economist would come up with all these weird examples. And this is what like the whole, what was called the re-switching debate was about. I'll, I'll put a link to that, folks, if you want. So now what Nicholas, as I take it, what you're saying is in finance, when it comes to just the calculation of cash flows, there's what's called duration. So like if you have a bond, you could ask what's the duration of this bond and there's a formula you apply and it's like a weighted average of the time delay from when the various cash flows come in for whatever this bond entitles you to. And it has to do with like, the what is it? Because the higher the duration, the more sensitive the bond's prices do a change in interest rates. It's, it's that kind of a thing. So that's a well-known concept in finance that's not considered dubious. People use it all the time. You know, that's, that's a basic tool. And so, Nicholas, what you guys did is you is you said, okay, let's try to rehabilitate standard Austrian capital and interest theory instead of using this dubious thing of the average period of production that we know, yeah, there's real serious problems with it. Instead, we'll use something more based on this concept of duration from finance. Yes, that's that's actually exactly correct. And you point into something I haven't mentioned yet: uh, duration. Uh, has uh, can have like a dual meaning. One is the meaning of how long in average is, is this cash flow, which is this problem of what's the average period of production. But it also has another meaning, which is a measure of sensitivity. What happens to the price of the bond or the price of the production process, the project, uh, when the interest rate moves? And it happens to be that those projects that are uh, take more time in terms of duration are also more sensitive to changes in the discount rate, which is kind of the Austrian intuition behind capital theory and the business cycle. When the interest rate goes down, the longer the project, the higher its price goes up, and that makes it more attractive uh, for investors. Then at some point, if the central bank increases the interest rate, the inverse effect happens. Now the price of investment that are longer take more time gets hit more than projects with that take less time. And that creates that kind of uh, boom and bust behavior that we see when we tell this, uh, the business cycle story and we say, well, investors invest in long term, then that wasn't profitable. They need to reallocate resources in shorter term investments. And that's costly. Because investment, you cannot just move it one way to the other. Once you put it down, it's costly to undo it and transform it into something else. And, and so this is why I, mean, I don't want, I'm trying not to steal your thunder here. I just want to make sure the audience is getting this. That's why the, in the Austrian tradition with, with a rich capital structure, as opposed to like a, a Keynesian model or even a, you know, neoclassical model where they don't have a capital structure where it's just, you know, firms and maybe there's a capital stock denoted by K, you know, with a subscript of T to say at any given time, what's the number saying, how much capital is there as opposed to, different physical structures and different stages of production in the, in the mainstream or Keynesian view, if the interest rate goes down, they might say, Oh, that will increase capital spending. You know, investment will go up, 
but they don't have a notion of going into different lines. Whereas what you're saying, Nicholas, is no, in the real world, or, or let's say a more realistic model that has different types of projects that have different time horizons, it's not just that when the interest rate goes down, investment goes up in the aggregate. It's that investment in particular lines is really augmented, particularly those lines that are very with a very long time horizon. They see a much bigger percentage increase in spending on those lines. And that's what gives rise to the Austrian, you know, the, the triangle, the, the, the Hayekian triangle getting pulled at both ends and so forth for people who've seen Garrison's PowerPoint. Uh, yes. And the interesting thing, the interesting thing, sorry, is uh, you can show this effect, which, I mean, even if it makes like uh, sense when you start to think this with these financial terms and so on, uh, you can still show the effect making a story of relative price changes, which is what economists usually like to think in terms of, right? Changes in relative prices. So what will be the prices here? The price will be the present value of the cash flow. So I know that it's going to make so many payments in so many periods, take the present value, that's the price of the project. So you can have two projects uh, with the same present value, let's say, but different times involved. One takes longer than the other. So when the interest rate goes down, the value of those of both projects go up. But the value of the project that takes more time goes up more. That's one of the effects that duration is capturing. And that's going to give you a change in the relative price. And the way I'm trying to describe this is getting the Austrian business cycle theory and uh, build it on top of financial micro foundations to distinguish it from the typical uh, micro-foundation where you have just a representative firm and a representative consumer. I'm trying to emphasize you need to think about this in financial terms, and then you see the change in relative prices. And that's why I'm saying you build the theory on more consistent grounds. So um, in this paper, specifically this this 2018 paper, The Role of Capital Structure in Austrian Business Cycle Theory, did you guys just elaborate on the stuff we're talking about here or was there a whole nother train of argument that you brought up in that paper? Well, now going more specific to that paper, uh, uh, just a little background for those who are listening and want to read that paper. That was uh, an invited paper for the Journal of Private Enterprise. So it's dealing with a very specific topic, but it's a good summary of the implications of our work. And one of the things we are saying is if you want to tell the Austrian business cycle story, you don't need the stages of production that we are familiar with now through the Garrison model. All you need is the duration, the period of production. So if you go back in time to our conversation, we were saying that with Ben Barber's development and so on, this idea of period of production became very complicated. It wasn't going uh, in a good direction. So something had to replace that. And you can have, for instance, Lachman starting to emphasize a heterogeneous capital goods, and you also have Hayek and then Garrison working on the stages of production, the ones we are familiar from, from Garrison's, uh, Garrison's graph. And what we are saying is the stages of production have some issues when you go away from theory and want to do empirical work. The stages of production are great to capture the idea. When you're producing a good, you need to keep some order. If I'm doing, I don't know, a pizza, I need to put the cheese, uh, then the tomatoes, etc. Then I get my pizza. If I mess up the order, I'm going to get something else. Now, when we go to do empirical work, uh, there is no such things of shakily defined as stages of production. 
we need to define <laughs> what's the stage and where it's located. And this can lead to some problems. Let's say, for instance, uh, I don't know, the financial industry provides services to the energy sector, and the energy sector, in turn, provides services to the financial industry. This is the problem of looping, two mm -hmm. different stages providing services to each other. So if we are going to make an empirical work and we need to order them which one comes first, that becomes a problem, and that can become an issue when I'm trying to look to see if the data shows what the graphical model predicts. It, just yeah. for people who, do, who haven't seen it, so the the foil against which Nicholas is, is rebelling here is he's saying Gar for, in, Garrison got it from Hayek, but most of us not current you know, younger Austrian economists, we we got this from from Garrison's treatment because it's so uh, elegant and easy to, to grasp. But he's got a a, a triangle that it's um, like a, a right triangle that you're the you're seeing it. The, the ninety degree angle is on the what the the right bottom, and so on the left side that's the earliest stage. And that's uh, mining. And then there's what ma manufacturing and, re and retail and wholesale and then consumption. Or I, I might be skipping a step or two, but that's the that's the idea. And you can or you can picture it too, like or, or I, when I would teach this stuff, Nicholas, you know, an undergrad level. And I think I probably did it in the study guide for man economy and state. You know, you could picture some the agricultural thing like first the farmers planting the wheat and then you get that and you turn it into flour and then you go and you bake the bread and then you you know send it to the to the grocery store and so you can look at the little life cycle of a particular consumption good and it all fits neatly into these stages of production but what you're saying Nicholas is in the real world there's lots of things where the different sectors they buy and sell from each other several times perhaps and it's not obvious if you're trying to arrange it and say ah which of these industries is further from consumption it's not obvious that there's even an answer to that. Yes, uh, and don't get me wrong. I think it's a great, a great tool to to teach and understand why the structure of production is important. I'm not saying, of course, it's not. What I'm saying is, when you want to go from the model to do empirical work, then many of the assumptions in the model become problematic. One mm -hmm. of the assumptions is the stages are only in one location at a time. And they don't have this looping uh, issue going on. Uh, another issue is uh, maybe the energy sector, again, is providing services through the whole <laughs> production process. So where is it supposed to be located? So th that, that becomes a problem. And that's the reason why uh, I think in recent years, empirical academic research dealing with the business cycle theory uh, in terms of Carrison's model has been having problems finding good data to show the effects because they are not it's not easy to fit the what we see uh, under the assumptions of the model and what Lewin and I are saying is you actually don't need to talk about stages of production what you need to do is to talk about duration so let me give you an example to see if it helps um, finding data to do a work like this is, is very hard but we had another paper, I think it's called an EVA, which is a financial term, an application to business cycle, something like that. And so we go to 2001 and we look at the 30 firms listed at the time in the Dow Jones and we rank them in terms of size, where the larger the balance sheet, the total assets, all the productive assets the firm has, that will be the, the way we rank them. And we look at the top 10 and the bottom 10. 
And we measure two things. One is what's the net investment? Are they growing in size or not? And what are the profits that the firm see they are getting from uh, their usual business activities? And we track this to movement in both short-term and long-term interest rates. And what we get is that the larger the firm, let's say the higher its duration, the more their profits go up as, as they see them, and the larger they become, they tend to grow faster, uh, which is uh, what you expect to see from the Austrian business cycle theory. So we rebuild this theory in empirical terms. We do an empirical application, if you want, without making use of tissues of production. Okay, so is it... Am I right then in saying instead of you trying to take a particular firm and figure out which stage does it fit into, instead you're just looking at the duration of its cash flows and, and you're you're saying that's the way we're going to assess its, uh, loosely speaking, like its, its time horizon? Yes, uh, we, we cannot do that exactly, but we do something that tries to approximate that. Maybe another way to think about this is instead of trying to track what's happening to stages of production – Let's say you have, uh, I don't know, output information at the industry level, like manufacturing, services, mining, etc. Can you make, let's say, an educated, plausible guess that maybe mining is more capital intense, more roundabout than, I don't know, um, uh, restaurants like hospitality, hotels, and so on? Mm -hmm. If you think that's plausible, then you should expect the industry sector to be more sensitive to monetary policy than the other one. And you can also see something like that. So if you do an empirical work in those terms, instead of looking in one big triangle where these different industries fall, what you are saying is each industry is its own triangle. The larger the triangle, the more sensitive should be to changes in interest rates. And does that pan out? Uh, that was part of my dissertation, and that pan out. I did that study for uh, for Latin America as a response to U.S. monetary policy, and then I did some work with Andreas Hoffman for Europe, and you can you can see these effects. Of mm -hmm. course, empirical work is never going to give you like a perfect picture, <laughs> uh, but but you can see these effects. Yes. Okay. Well, that's great, folks. Let's take a break from my discussion with Nicholas to talk about my book choice. If you're intrigued by the ideas raised in this episode, then I really strongly urge you to get my book choice because that's where I take you from scratch and I explain the entire Misesian project as he lays out in human action, culminating in the Misesian theory of the boom-bust cycle. And that's, that's really what I wanted to get across in the book was I said, somebody who reads this thing, they have to know Mises' views on money, banking, in order to understand his view of the business cycle. So all the stuff that Nicholas and I are talking about in this episode, the single place you go to see where I tried to explain it in a clear fashion where you're going to have no ambiguity and you're going to understand exactly what Mises was saying. It's my book choice. So you can go to bobmurphyshow.com slash choice to get a quick link to the blurb at the independent Institute, which is the publisher and see how to order it. Or if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you can see how you can make a contribution and get a signed copy of choice because that's one of the options there I offer. Why don't we move on to another paper here just because I, I know we don't have an infinite, <laughs> we don't have an infinite time horizon for this uh, discussion. So what about this one? This looked really interesting to me. So it's from 2016. 
it was you with Edward Braun and also Peter Lewin in the Journal of Institutional Economics. And the title is Ludwig von Mises' Approach to Capital is a Bridge Between Austrian and Institutional Economics. So what's the uh, what's the snapshot from this paper? Yes, that, that's another angle that came out from this uh, work on what the average of production is. And I'm simplifying, of course, but broadly, capital in economics is defined in two ways. One is this aggregate of capital tools. So for those who have some familiarity with economic theory, think of the production function, right? Capital goods, human capital, and so on. Uh, the other one is uh, capital in terms of value. What's the total, what's the market value of all the productive assets of whatever nature that I need to carry on my business? That's different than saying it's only tools. Uh, tools is a thing. Mm-hmm. In this other definition, it's not only tools, it's any production asset you need, but it's a market value of that. And that's the approach that Mises takes to capital. If you remember when he talks about uh, capital in human action, he talks about capital goods, and then he talks about capital, and he's distinguishing one thing is the tools, another thing is the market value, and so on. And one of the things that Lewin and I are trying to push is we should think about capital in value terms, <laughs> not just in tools. Uh, and that will be a, another discussion of all the problems that this can lead to, like the one you mentioned, reswitching and so on, etc. Yeah, now, and that's a that's a fundamental distinction. I mean, and I I do that if I'm like ever talking about capital for some reason, like at Mises U or something, to say, you know, and, and to me, I think that's one of the major pitfalls that mainstream economists get into is they use that word capital to mean either the produced means of production, you know, like a tractor or something, and they also mean it as like the thing that earns interest, you know, like as a as a financial accounting concept. And then they'll go back and forth and, they, and they'll say stuff like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if we make more tractors, we'd expect the market rate of interest to go down, which to me is like getting the dimensions wrong. And and so, yeah, I think that's a that's an incredibly important distinction. And Mises, in my mind, is like the single best economist in terms of in the history of economic thought who who really stressed that distinction. Yes. And it's interesting that he then growth about the subject very long. <laughs> but if you think he say are are very, very sharp. Uh, And I agree, there is a lot of confusion because most economists use the same word to mean totally different things. They use the same letter in their models to mean totally different things. And then we are a lot, we get confusion of what's the price of capital, what capital is, and and so on. So we are emphasizing, think of this in terms of what investors in the market (laughs) think of, the market value of what they need to produce. That's what we are trying to explain, the real world. And that's how we think of capital. Uh, now, what's the connection with uh, institutional economics? Uh, one of these uh, uh, things that Mrs. mentions, kind of way he does, he talks about this and he keeps moving, uh, is that capital is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to phrase here, sure. uh, just to make the point clear. It's not like a, a priori praxeological term, it's historical contingent. At some point, we develop, let's say, you know, accounting, and then we start to define what capital is, and that happens to allow uh, profit and loss calculation, economic calculation, and then we can have, uh, you know, the economy develop and so on. So you do need capital to be able to perform calculation, but that is something that we develop as a society and so on, etc. It's part of our institutions in, in some sense, I guess. Uh, 
And it's interesting in one in uh, at some point in one of his papers with Lewin, uh, or in one idea I, I can't remember right now, uh, you can show the the profit of a firm. You can write that with a variable for capital in value terms. And if that variable doesn't exist because you have, let's say, a socialist community where there are no private property of means of production, then the profit calculation is not that it's wrong or biased, it just doesn't exist, which is, of course, Mises point, Hyatt point, and so on. That's, that's kind of the, of the connection with the institutional literature, but to do that, you need to think of capital in terms of a defined market value that we follow through some accounting financial rules and so on, not in the typical neoclassical term of an aggregate of physical tools. Did you get any feedback as far like for people who are really wed to the institutional? Because I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but yeah, I think part of the appeal of like the new institutional economics that the people working in that area, they know that there's something wrong with the real austere mathematical formalism of the you know neoclassical mainstream. They know that, yeah, there's something that these these models of hyper-rational actors and markets always clear and blah, 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 and sub-game perfect equilibria, they know that that's not right. That's not an ad- adequate model of the world. And, and But yet a lot of the institutional people, the way they try to deal with that is they get, in my opinion, real loosey-goosey and they just start like they, they, they say, oh, economic theory doesn't work in this case. So they just kind of throw it out and they start, you know, using some more ad hoc approach. And whereas you're trying to show that, well, no, actually it's, if you have a better theory that, you know, there, there are still economic laws and institutions still matter, but this is, this is a better, more fruitful way to, to look at it. Yeah. And that's not reinvent the wheel. We already have this approach. We have a very prominent economist of the 20th century Mises talking about this. So go from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if the point is, which might be open to debate, of course, is uh, if capital is defined in value terms, once you decide how to measure it and so on, that can become an institution or it can become a uh, condition to the historical context when it's developed and so on. It's not something that, uh, it's not an economic law, let's say, right? Capital is not like the law of demand. It's something we need to define. And and, and that's where this uh, this link is. Uh, it may be that there is something to, to get. Uh, we haven't seen any feedback yet. Uh, the paper is fairly new for <laughs> how fast or slow the academic world moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the Journal of Institutional Economics, so I'm sure eventually it will be read by someone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then hopefully we'll see uh, uh, what reactions it gets. Well, as, as you know, the, the work of a peer-reviewed paper has a very long duration also. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. All right, well, let me move along here. I got, I got two two more for you. So this next one, we can just spend a little bit of time because I want to do save the bulk of the remainder for the uh, the controversial one on the fractional reserve banking stuff. But before we hit that, here's a fun one. So this was from 2015 in the Journal of Private Enterprise. You did this with... Um, Adrian Ravier, it's called Fiscal Policy and Crowding Out Effects in Capital-Based Macroeconomics with Idle Resources. And so you got a bunch of buzzwords in there, but I think <laughs> I realize why you're saying these are all connected. And again, it, it just shows the importance of capital-based or you know the importance of capital theory for economics that somebody like Paul Krugman, they look at 
the a high rate of unemployment and they say that's pure social waste. If the government just runs the printing press or they run a budget deficit and we just hire these workers, then we get more output. And so, you know, how could any of these right wingers possibly be content with these factories only running at 80 percent and some of the workforce just sitting home watching TV? That's just pure, unadulterated waste. And that's because in his model, there's no capital structure. It's just, you know, there's a, a production function and there's K and L and why wouldn't you plug it in? So why don't you take over now, Nicholas? And <laughs> yes. How, how <laughs> if you have capital, a capital based macroeconomics, you know, why, why is our picture, our understanding of fiscal policy and crowding out and so forth and idle resources? How does that change the, the, the picture? Of course, uh, Adrian, by the way, he's the one who introduced me to Ben Powell. Uh, oh, okay. When I moved to Boston. Uh, so that paper, we actually do work with Garrison's model. And the idea of this paper was Adrian's. And what he wanted to say is when we or someone uh, criticize Keynes, po- Keynesian policies and Keynes and so on, there is an important assumption we should not forget. Keynes is talking in the Great Depression with a lot of idle resources. So to make a criticism of Keynesian policy, we need to start with idle resources, not in full employment, and then show that if you overheat the economy, something bad will happen. You need to show that you start with idle resources, you push the economy, let's say, to its, uh, you don't overheat it, just to the equilibrium, but then there will be problems anyway, which will go kind of against Krugman's reading you were describing. So that's what the idle means. We have resources that are not being employed. What does capital-based microeconomic means? That's a Garrison's model. He, that's how he likes to refer to, to this model. That's, that's why it's in the title. So what do we do? We take Garrison's model and we follow a very similar story that we are familiar with when he describes the Austrian business cycle theory through uh, his three graphs. But we start inside the PPF with idle resources. And what we are saying is, Hey, PPF stands for production possibilities frontier. So society is not physically producing the total amount of output that it could. Right. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Uh, So what we're saying is if you want to achieve equilibrium, it's not only a matter of employing all the resources, it's employing them in the right combination for the right goods and so on. How do you show that in the production possibilities frontier in the PPF? Well, there is one particular point, which is the equilibrium point. But it happens to be that if you have idle resources and you push this, let's say through government spending in highways, uh, infrastructure, or or whatever the spending is, that's going to push the economy to a non-efficient point in the PPS. So you will have uh, being wasting resources in the sense that the value they provide is less than their cost of opportunity. So we do a, a few modifications to the graphs to show that uh, be careful with looking at the aggregate of output because you can be going in the wrong direction, even if you are cutting down unemployment. And this is a lesson I try to give to all my students. This is like, let's say you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, I feel okay. And the doctor will say, yes, but that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong. We still need to run some tests. The fact that you are healthy makes you feel good. But the fact that you feel good doesn't mean you are healthy. Something else may be going on. So it's similar with economic variables. A healthy economy gives you low unemployment rates, healthy growth rates, etc. 
But the fact that you see good economic variables doesn't mean your economy is in a good situation. You need to go and look deeper, look at the structure of production or all these issues. So that's what we are doing with with Carlson's model. So let me, I'm trying to think of of an intuitive example. So this is going to be a little bit contrived, but tell me, Nicholas, if this is the spirit of what you guys are getting at. So um, let's say we're in a recession and there's a bunch of unemployed uh, workers sitting at home watching TV. The government comes along and borrows money and hires them to go plant some trees at the local park. And to do that, these workers, they're not going to use their bare hands. They're, they're going to need shovels. And so the government's, oh, geez, there's not shovels. We, you know, there's, we don't have enough shovels. Anymore. So the government goes in the open market and, and rents the shovels or, or, or let's, you know, maybe not shovels, something like earth moving equipment. Let's say they're going to, they're going to build, put a, a park in, in down the, in downtown. And so they have to rent some uh, earth moving equipment. And so that, because the government comes in on the market and does that, it bids away the earth moving equipment from some other project that a private contractor was bidding on. And now that project is just unprofitable because the price of renting the, that earth moving equipment got bid up by the government entering the market. And so now there's some housing project that won't get built. And so it's true that, you know, those particular, the, the measured unemployment rate might go down at least for a few months because those workers, but it's not as if every single tool and little bit of natural resource that those unemployed workers need to do whatever it is the government's going to hire them to do was also unemployed in just the right proportions that necessarily to get that slack labor market, you know, filled and get them, those workers doing something, they're going to suck resources away from other lines. And what are the chances that that new outcome is going to be preferable in some sense to the original one? Is that, is, am I, am I in the neighborhood of what you guys are talking about? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, so yeah, so the, the question then would be, you know, does society value the, the in my example, the, that park that the government kind of just, you know, said, I'll go build a park more than that housing, pro, you know, the housing development that now doesn't get built because the, the tractor or the, you know, bulldozers and stuff got bit away. Yeah, that's totally fine. What I will say for those who are listening to us, the focus of that paper was to show that the best we can <laughs> in, Garrison's, uh, in Garrison's model. But yes, that's the underlying argument. Okay, great. So now uh, with the remaining time here, why don't we, so that w- what originally happened, folks, the, the background to this is I had written a paper um, called More Than Quibbles. And I'll link to it again here, folks, because I did a recent episode that the number escapes me off the top of my head. But when I walked through my, my paper on fractional reserve banking and I focused on the views of Ludwig von Mises. And so there I was making the argument that Mises, yes, was a free banker. If by free banker, we mean for most of his career, it looked like he didn't want the government to do anything special regulating banking. He just said, no, have standard contract enforcement, treat commercial banks the way you treat pizza shops, you know, in a, in a limited government state, the, you know, the kind that, that Mises is a classical liberal favored. And um, be, because Mises thought that if you were to have the government sort of guarantee 100% reserves, you couldn't trust them to do that. That when there was a crisis, they would throw that constraint out the window and they'd let, they relieve the banks of their contractual or, you know, they would relieve them of the regulation and they'd go ahead and let them suspend specie redemption and so on, as they have done historically. And so Mises thought, no, the best way to contain the banks and to keep them from a destructive issuance of what's called fiduciary media is to just have what's called free banking. Okay. And so now where the dispute is, 
between people like Joe Salerno and me on the one hand and George Selgin and Larry White and I guess now Nicholas on the other is did Mises think that economically speaking, the ideal would be 100 percent reserve banking and that we and he was just saying the, the best method of achieving that was, you know, through through the free banking method. Or did he actually think that, no, depending on the preferences of the people in society, for all we know, the equilibrium reserve ratio might be 60%. It might be 20%. Who knows? We'll let the market decide, but there's no reason to assume it would be 100. And in fact, we can look at a lot of passages from Mises that would suggest he doesn't think it would be efficient for or optimal, let's say, for banks in a free society to have close to 100% reserves. So when I published that paper, I saw online that Nicholas chimed in. And, and you had written on this. And so I wish I had seen your paper and maybe I'll try to formally respond to it later. But for our purposes right now, let me just tell people what it is and then I'll let you chime in here, Nicholas. So it is, I'm just finding it here in your list. So this is in 2012 and it's called, um, it's in the journal New Perspectives on Political Economy. And the title is Mises on Fractional Reserves, colon, a review on Huerto de Soto's argument. And so in this paper, Nicholas goes through and, and sort of rebuts Huerto de Soto, who is making the claim that, oh, yeah, Mises was definitely against fractional reserve banking. And, you know, Mises is on board with with me, Huerto de Soto and, and people like that who who say fractional reserve banking isn't causes the business cycle. OK, so I'll stop there. And, and Nicholas, why don't you take over and <laughs> and defend your your side <laughs> of this debate? Okay, sure. Uh, that was actually my first, uh, let's say, long <laughs> scholarly paper I, I, I wrote. I have one or two before that are pretty short. So first, why uh, why I refer to Huerta de Soto? Uh, the reason is that in his book, he, he offers a, a very structured uh, set of quotes and arguments. So it's very easy to go and say, okay, uh, those who think that Mises defend 100% reserve banking, here is clearly laid out why. So it makes it easy to go and see if uh, what he thinks Mises is saying is, is right, is wrong, and so on. Uh, and let me clarify that this is a topic of history of thought interpretation. So we may read the same passages and have a different reading, and that's how it's always going to be with history of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, that's why the references to Huerta de Soto is nothing in particular uh, with, with him, of course, is because of how he presents the, the case. Uh, so what do I do in that paper? I basically go through each quote that Huerta de Soto refers, and I go and see if the quote and the context of that passage supports clearly a 100% position. And I usually find that that's not the case. So you can have that interpretation, but maybe it's not the only interpretation. Or maybe if you look at the context of the discussion, uh, at least for me, uh, it's not the interpretation. So that's the strategy in which I approach the paper. Uh, where I think this reading is, is coming from, that Mises defense uh, 100%. Uh, you might remember uh, the theory of money and credit, uh, when he uh, republishes the book, he has a fourth section, which is a proposal of monetary reform. I think it's in the 50s, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, that sounds uh, right to me. Yeah, 54 or something like that. And, and again, the way I understand the proposal is that he's saying, given the medicine that we have, this, given this is the situation, what I propose now is to have the issuer banks, and I think he's talking about there about central banks, to go into the marginal 100% uh, 
reserves, meaning whatever you have issued, that's out there, but now you cannot issue any more uh, paper money if you don't have any more gold. Uh, but he's talking about the central banks, the way I read it, not about commercial banks, it, with the exception. But of, let me just mention it's it's not it's fine either way. And but I think he's talking about commercial banks also. But again, it's I'm not going to go to the barricades over that one. But just yeah. for my for my two cents, I I do think Mises in that particular proposal actually includes commercial banks too. But I agree it, for him, this is like a makeshift. Yeah, given where we are, this is this is the best thing to do. Yes. There is a passage, uh, it's mentioned in the paper, where he talks about large commercial banks. And that's why I think he's not... Talk- there are two reasons I think he's not talking about all commercial banks. He, At some point, he talks about an exception for very large commercial banks. And the way he talks about issuer banks... To me, it reads as if he's talking about the central bank because those are the banks issuing the convertible notes to gold. But again, we are in the area, of course, of history of thought interpretation. And this leads me to the the other issue. Uh, Mises is not writing about these topics as if you, Larry Weiss, or Selchi, and me, whoever is writing today. So he's not being very explicit and outspoken and clear about all these issues. He's just uh, writing as if this debate doesn't exist. And therefore, there are a lot of things that are open in the air that will become a matter of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, so I was struggling. It's, it's unfortunate, Nicholas, because here it, people would have needed to read your whole paper first and probably you would need to review it too for, if you and I were going to go back and really get particulars. Ah, but you said here on you know page 221, blah, blah, blah. Um, but let me run some things by you and you stop me. So I, I agree for sure that Mises has plenty of passages where he says there are good things that came from the use of fiduciary media. And again, again sorry, folks, if this jargon's intimidating, fiduciary media in Mises' framework means bank notes or demand deposits with a bank that are not backed up by the money proper. So in our day and age, it'd mean backed up by actual, you know, hundred dollar bills in Mises time, he meant backed up by gold in the vault. So that's what fiduciary media is. So to, to say if, if there's fractional reserve banking, it means banks are issuing fiduciary media. That's one way to, so those two things go hand in hand. And so Nicholas, I agree. There's plenty of places where Mises unambiguously says, were it not for the development and use of fiduciary media, there would have been problems you know, like the purchasing power of money would have would have gone up in certain areas and that would have, you know, had difficult adjustments because the, you know, the price level would have had to come down, that sort of thing. But where I think, like what Salerno and I am now saying, and it looks like Huerto de Soto is saying also here, based on your quotes, is that we think it's unambiguous that Mises was saying any issuance of new fiduciary media or what he called a credit expansion necessarily sets in motion the boom-bust cycle. So I'm happy if somebody, if you want to say, yeah, but Mises thought as long as it was contained, the benefits coming from these other things outweighed the fact that we had these perhaps smallish business cycles periodically because of the use of fiduciary media. I'm okay with that, but that's not what Selgin and White are saying. They're saying, or in Roger Koppel too, as far as I know, they're saying, um, they're, or sorry, not Roger Koppel, uh, Steve Horowitz. They're saying that no, Mises is not agreeing with that, or if he is, he's wrong. Their their position is that so long as it's you know a market welcoming, so long as the public wants to hold more banknotes given the existing purchasing power of money, 
the, the the things, the market forces that would lead banks in a free banking system to issue more fiduciary media and lower their reserve requirements, Selgin does not think that sets in motion the boom-bust cycle. Whereas to me, I think that's a that's got to be a credit expansion. And Mises clearly says in several places, any credit expansion sets in motion the boom-bust cycle. So that on that narrow point, where where do you come down? So I don't think that, again, this is a, you know, text interpretation of what he was writing. I don't think he's saying that any or any, always a fiduciary expansion is going to trigger a cycle. Uh, I think that's the case when the monetary expansion is above money demand. And then, of course, you, you do have a problem. Uh, something that I found tricky when I'm reading him is when he's talking about the ideal poor theoretical scenario and when he's talking about second best or third best situations, uh, which mm-hmm. is not to mean that it's not to be read like if we have this thing and this is my second third best, that doesn't mean in theory it's my idea. Uh, that's also another reading I do. Uh, in terms of what he thinks, right? I don't I don't read him as saying if there's a future expansion that's always going to produce a cycle of small or big. Uh, I also don't think that's the case. And if you were to think that, I don't think I will agree with him. I'm more concerned when uh, the banks expand future media, not because there was a, an, an increase in demand. As long mm-hmm. as that supply is matching demand, I don't see major problems. Now, if that happens without demand increasing, then yes, I see a problem. Okay, so let me, and here, I'm not trying to trap you. I just want to. Yes use our strongest piece of evidence in this case. <laughs> when, I, when I say R, I mean like Joe Salerno and where to the soda and me. And, and this, go, two, two uh, caveats, folks. Number one, just because I'm agreeing with like Joe or Huerta on this one point does not mean I'm endorsing everything both of them have ever written in the fractional reserve banking debate. I, off the top of my head, I don't know anything that Joe Salerno's written that I disagree with. I know DeSoto gets into stuff about, you know, it's fraud and with legal principles and the difference between a bailment contract and a loan. And and I'm not saying it is wrong, but I just, that's not my area. So there's, you know, there's that caveat. And the other one is the, um, just because Mises thinks something, he might be wrong. Okay. So clearly the more important thing is, does fiduciary media cause a business cycle? Not did Ludwig von Mises think that it did? Since Mises, since we're talking about Mises' theory of the business cycle, I figure he, you know he's pr- a pretty good authority figure on it. So, w- with all those caveats out of the way, Nick, the, the one and you you deal with this, and you, but partly why I want to ask you now too is because I don't in your paper I didn't see how you diffuse this. So Mises has this footnote that you that was originally from National Economy, and then it ends up in Human Action as well. And I'll just read it. And this is the only quote that I'll read here, um, Nicholas. So don't worry. Okay. I'm not going to keep throwing long quotes at you. But I'm just curious because this seems so un- unambiguous to me. He says, the notion of normal credit expansion is absurd. Issuance of additional fiduciary media, no matter what its quantity may be, always sets in motion those changes in the price structure, the description of which is the task of the theory of the trade cycle. Of course, if the additional amount issued is not large, neither are the inevitable effects of the expansion. So, I mean... A minute ago, it sounded like you were saying, I don't think he thinks that any issuance always cause. And to me, it sounds like that's exactly what he said. And now you quote this in your paper and try to deal with it. And I confess, I don't see how you're saying that that doesn't mean what it appears to be saying. Well, uh, I wrote that seven years ago. I'm not <laughs> trying to avoid the topic, so I don't remember uh-huh. exactly what I said. Gotcha. But, <laughs> but uh, if I remember what I wrote at the time, 
who is he talking to? What is he meaning by when he's writing a normal, uh, what was the word, a normal rate of expansion, I think. Normal credit expansion. Normal credit expansion. You mentioned he wrote that in, in National Economy, I think, first. Right. Well, that's what you're saying in your paper. And then I know I it's in human action. I, that's yeah. not familiar. So that's like, you know, the first half of the uh, 20th century. Is he talking mm-hmm. about what we mean now in this conversation? Any normal rate of expansion is going to produce a cycle? Or he's answering to economists saying, oh, it's okay if you keep expanding at a normal rate. Uh, what they're saying is it doesn't matter if that's more than uh, above demand. I don't... I don't know exactly. I think what he means is that he's grappling with people who say, oh, as long as the commercial banks are just expanding because of the needs of business, then, you know, they're, they're, they're just like riding the, the boom or whatever. They're not feeding the boom is my, is my guess. So I'm not as certain about exactly what did he have in mind. Right. But and then me, it becomes a problem of, of interpretation. Uh but he says issuance of additional fiduciary media, no matter what its quantity may be, always sets in motion. Yes. That so, sounds pretty, pretty yes, definitive. But, but the exact meaning of those words depend on the meaning, the contextual meaning that he has in his mind when he's writing. Right? The same okay. words well, sometimes mean different things depending what the debate is. I think additional means that you're adding to, but okay. Well, yeah, so it's, it's, adding it's to fine. The, so, adding to the market, given a constant demand of credit or adding to uh, mm. the market when demand is increasing. That's right. the part okay. I don't so, remember him talking and then it becomes fishy. I agree with okay. that. Okay. So here, so here's the, the two, two possible alternatives. So one way a free, a free banker in the tradition of Selgin and White would handle that is to say, oh yeah, Mises is admitting that it causes a boom bust cycle, but you know what? There are so many other advantages and he's saying, as long as it's not a big deal, it'd be a tiny little boom bust. So yeah, maybe there'd be these tiny little recessions, if you will, but we get all the advantages of not having to dig up gold and we don't have debilitating price deflation, you know, whenever there's an increase in the demand to hold money. And so on balance, it's 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 good, you know, that the, the benefits outweigh the costs. And it looks like maybe that's what Mises thought too. Who cares what he thinks in terms of the, the trade-off, but, you know, we can find... That's one way, but it sounds like you're saying you you think it he he might not be saying anything less than 100 percent reserves necessarily causes a boom by cycle, even a small one. You think if if the banks are issuing more fiduciary media because of the desire to hold more banknotes, then maybe that's fine, and and you think maybe that's not what Mises has in mind here. I'm thinking, given that it's it's a part that it's struggled to understand exactly what he means, who he's talking to. That's that passage, which remember is a footnote, right? It's mm-hmm. not like a, a section in the book. It's just a footnote. Is that can, can that passage have an interpretation that is consistent with the other things it's saying? If the answer is yes, if it can, whether we believe that's the right interpretation or not, but if it's a potential interpretation, then it's hard to say. Well, Mises definitely says this. Now, if that. Uh, um, Interpretation that will uh, be compatible with his other statements is uh, is possible when it's you know it becomes a debatable point. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm trying to emphasize in this paper, even if I have my own interpretation, is uh, there are a lot of things here that are very debatable, um, and there is no way I think that's going to go away because we cannot go and ask him what do you think. <laughs> right. 
and his own his views might have changed over time too. So of so course, yeah, yes. again to be to be conciliatory, the reason I liked your paper is because you presented a lot of stuff. It, once you showed it, I remembered having read a lot of it. You know, it's not like it was it was new stuff, but I just oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that that one or I forgot about that one. Where yeah, Mises does praise different aspects of fiduciary media, and so I'm open to the to the argument that he thought on balance. I mean, I still maintain what what I originally thought when I wrote in the in the recent QJ article. But my point is, when you when I read your paper, I was like, oh, okay, this isn't as open and shut as I thought. But still, on this narrow point of does it cause the business cycle, I, I still think that. So, so you're right. There's plenty of passages where it's not clear what he means, and people could argue both ways. I'm just saying that one to me is 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 pretty uh, blatant. And and so yeah, it's consistent with the other stuff I think too, because the other but the other stuff you're right, it's a little bit vaguer. So yes, that's the main message of, of the paper. This is not an open and shut question, and of course we shouldn't take the position because Mises thought X, then X has to be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like reading Mises and many other authors because they're great thinkers, and it's a way for me to learn, not just to <laughs> repeat what they say. Mm-hmm. So of course that's the exercise, and then the. Maybe he actually thought uh, what you are saying that okay, we are going to have some very small, you know, uh, issues with uh, this low credit expansion, but the benefit more than outweigh the cost. Maybe he thought that, and well, that, that's fine. He thought that. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm given it's a footnote, right? So when I try to yeah. place that footnote in all his work, uh, that's how much sense does it make? Right. And if it's so clear that that's his thought why we need to debate a footnote, why there is not like, a, you know, a chapter or something more explicit. Yeah. I mean, I guess somebody like DeSoto would say, you're right. I presented all these other quotes and you were, you know, taking out a microscope and bending over backwards to deny that. So finally it happens to be the most definitive thing he said in this one footnote. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> yeah. I get how I understand believing it because I understand where you're coming from, but I'm saying, from someone who like DeSoto thinks it's so crystal clear. How clear could he be? Uh, and yes, then, I know. You know yeah, it yeah. just so happens that the most definitive statement happens to be in a footnote. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Well, as the last thing here, can you just give us your broad view? Let's instead of being so technical and, and referring to peer reviewed articles, just for the listeners, um, what are your views just broadly speaking on the fact that central banks around the world have been pushing huge amounts of liquidity into the financial sector. Interest rates are negative in, in some places in Europe and uh, Japan, I believe. So what, what what does that mean? So you as an academic economist who specialized in Austrian business cycle theory and the relationship between capital structure and financial flows, what, what's your perspective on all this stuff? Um, well, you're making reference to how monetary policy has been managed since 2018, the crisis, if I, if I get you right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, not intentionally, but many central banks, especially the Fed, they have broken, broke down how monetary policy usually works. So let me simplify this. In the conventional way, if a central banker thinks uh, there should be more money in the market, or the interest rate should be lower, which, whichever terms you're thinking, it will increase them. It will print money, let's say. It will give that to the banks, and then the banks will extend loans to households or firms or whoever they find out is, you know, the, the best recipient. So the allocation of credit will fall into the banks, but the amount of face money will fall into the central bank decision. Now, 
with the 2008 crisis, these mechanics uh, change. And the way I try to explain what happened is, uh, you know, you have a financial crisis, you have all these banks breaking down. Uh, we can talk about Bernanke Soft, but his mindset is, we cannot have a too big to fail. We cannot have a domino effect. So I need to bail out all the big banks. I need to bail out everyone. But I don't want all that huge amount of money to go into the market and produce high inflation. Mm-hmm. So instead of going from central bank to banks to the market, now it's going from the central bank to the banks and then back to the central bank. And the way the central banks are doing that is letting banks uh, deposit their reserves at the central bank in a similar way that I put money in a savings account. And so the Fed starts to pay interest uh, to the reserves that the banks have at the deposit at the Fed. So the money doesn't go to the market, <laughs> it goes back to the Fed. Mm-hmm. And that stops the inflation, but that also stops the channel where the central bank is trying to move the interest rate or money supply and have an effect in the market. The problem that central banks are facing, and I hope they are thinking about it, is how you undo this. How, how you go back to a way where, for better or for worse, we are talking about what central banks do. A different discussion is, do we like central banks? But how do a central bank go back to a, a situation where they can have an impact in the market when they do something? And I, I don't have a clear answer for that, and I don't think most central banks do either. I think at least the Fed is comfortable with this scenario where they can change reserves, how much money they print, but that doesn't hit directly the market. Okay, so are you? am I right in saying that you think the standard Austrian business cycle theory analysis, it, it might be wrong to view it as like all the that QE that got pumped in to view that as completely distorting the structure of production and investment decisions because there was a sense in which by paying interest on reserves, they they kept that money bottled up. And so it it wouldn't have necessarily had the normal distortionary effects on the structure of production that we we would think in a typical Austrian boom bust cycle. It seems to be. Let me let me put it down to two things. One is the the lower interest rate can trigger the Austrian business cycle effects within the credit that is already in the market. The question is if the new money that is being created with QE and so on, it's not reaching the market, then how is distorting the structure of production? Maybe it's changing the value of financial assets, stocks, bonds, etc. Mm-hmm. But how is that going from the nominal world being money into being real goods transforming to specific capital goods if that money is not getting to the market? Uh, maybe there is a way this is happening. I'm, I'm not sure what that is. Um, okay. So am I right in saying you're more agnostic? You're, you're just observing that this is not your normal credit expansion? Uh, yes. Uh, so you have the Austrian business cycle theory and it has a set of assumptions. One of the assumptions is there is an expansion of credit, expansion of money, that increase of money has to go first to the financial sector so that the interest rate moves down before prices mm-hmm. go up. That's the idea. So if you print money and you do that to government spending, that will be a different type of dynamics. Right, right. Right. So are these assumptions of the chain of events that will lead to the Austrian business cycle in place today? Uh, it's not clear to me. That's not to say other problems are not out there. Sure. Right? So I'm just curious, does that mean then that you're saying you think 
like the Fed funds rate being 0% for seven years, that's close to what the natural rate would have been. It's not that the Fed pushed the interest rate down. Uh, that's interesting. That's not what I'm saying, but that's okay. what many people argue. So there are estimations of the natural rate of interest, and it actually is given very low values. And uh, as far as I know, it's still an open question in, in research why that's the case. Um, so some people are where the low interest rate is actually right because that's what the equilibrium rate estimations are saying. Um, okay, but do, do you think that the injection of QE pushed down interest rates or or not? Uh, probably yes at the beginning. Uh, I should have to go and, and check exactly how this new system was put in place and when and so on. The problem today is that the Fed can say, I'm going to pay zero uh, interest rate on excess reserves, but as long as banks don't move the money away from the Fed into the market, then they are not hitting the market. Um, and I think that right. might be a reason why the central banks are keeping interest rates so low, so that banks don't have an incentive to keep it at the Fed and try to lend it to the market. Okay. Well, well, here I'm getting I'm getting mixed up. So, wouldn't they need to? Wouldn't the Fed need to keep its the interest on reserves rate higher in order to make sure the? In other words, the the relevant thing is like the commercial bank. It's got private borrowers of a certain amount of credit worthiness who are willing to pay, let's say, two percent. So, if the Fed's just offering twenty five basis points, the bank, the commercial bank, might go lend it to the private sector, but the if the Fed's offering 1.75, then they'll say, oh, I'd rather get the guaranteed 1.75. So yeah. if the Fed wants to make sure the banks don't lend into the private sector, wouldn't they have to, to me, that doesn't mean that the, the target rate would be close to zero. That means, you see what I'm saying? No, yes. What, what I'm saying was was the inverse. If the, if the Fed wants to have that money flow into the market, they need to lower the reserves oh, oh, that okay. they pay the banks. Right, right. Okay. Uh, the, the problem is that they have so much money uh, sitting there that I don't know what basic point change can open the flag and have all this money, you know, go somewhere else. Uh, that's why I'm saying it's, it's very delicate. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, it is. It is tricky, and I guess I understand what you mean that the interest on reserves complicates things, but to me, it's. I mean, I think if you just run the thought experiment, say if the Fed just started rapidly selling off treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, wouldn't their price go down and wouldn't their yields go up? To me, it, it seems like they would, but I guess some people are saying, no, it, it wouldn't because then if the Fed did that, everyone would think it was it was the Great Depression 2.0 and the, the price, you know, the, the, their yields would stay low because everybody would rush to treasuries because they were terrified, which I guess that's possible. Yeah, I'm trying to think, so the Fed starts to buy treasury bonds, where is that money going? If it's coming back to the Fed, then they are not hitting the market. So they're having a very little effect, mm -hmm. if any. But if that money, of course, goes from the banks to businesses, then, well, they are executing monetary policy the way that everyone thinks about what monetary policy should be doing. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I, again, it, you're right. It, it is untested waters. And so it is yes, trying to, hard to figure out how do you apply, you know, a standard theory to this, these unprecedented circumstances. Okay. Well, um, why don't we wrap it up there, Nicholas? Thank you so much for your time. Um, are you, are you working on any projects right now that you want to tell the listeners about? 
Well, a related process to our large conversation is uh, we are close to finish a draft of a capital theory book with Peter Lewin, where we are like uh, summarizing, condensing all the work we did uh, all these years and adding a few uh, a few other insights that we haven't had the chance to write down yet. Uh, the other thing I've been working on, in case someone is, is interested, and I'd be glad to have some help because it's a new project, if anyone knows material, uh, is the rise of populism that we are seeing in Latin America and Eastern Europe and arguably uh, in the U.S. So I, I have some, uh, some time spending in political economy problems, if, if we want to put it that way. Okay, well, great. Well, good luck on those projects. And yeah, maybe some of the listeners can reach out and, and give you a hand. Uh, our guest has been Nicholas Kachanowski, and uh, thanks so much for joining us, Nicholas. Thank you, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.